Hi, Catty. And it's so good to see you. How are you? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, pleasure. And for inviting me to your lovely home. It is nice. Finally. I've been meaning to come many times, but now I finally made it here. Well, you've always had an open invitation. I know. You're very sweet. <laughs> yes. I was thinking, actually, on my way up that I have known you since I was 16 is years it, old. Are you really 16? <laughs> I was once upon a time 16. <laughs> I, I know. know. I mean, that is hard to believe. But yes, since but, I was at school with Emanuele, your son. All of these books are by me. This is fantastic. <laughs> How many? Run through. Give me the catalogue. There, well, there are 37 books, but of course these are all the different translations and editions. And uh, as you can see, it starts with Eye of the Needle. That was, in, in German, that was Die Nadel. And... Um, comes up all the way to the armour of life. So, 37 books yeah. in how many languages? 40 languages altogether. Total number of copies sold around the world? Uh, 191 million. So, as an author who is very proud of the fact that I've sold a million, I've got a long way to go. <laughs> Just making me a little jealous, Ken. <laughs> you had written, though, 11 books before you had a bestseller. Yes, well, the Eye of the Needle was my 11th and it was my first bestseller. You didn't start out writing books, though. I mean, that was not your very first job. I was a newspaper reporter. So you wrote your first novel while you had your job yep. on the newspaper and you wrote it in the evenings yes. in your flat in London. That's it. Yes, that's right. As a kind of side job. You had a young child at the time, though. Yes, actually, by that time we had two. So Emma you had two young time. children, a full-time job, and you decided to write a novel that was published but didn't go very far. Right. Most people, Ken, at this point would think, OK, quit that, I'm going to focus on the day job, <laughs> I mean, and rather than sticking at it. And that's, it's your confidence to keep going that's interesting. I guess so. Well, I think you need, don't you need that to finish your first book? I mean, you, you, you know, so many journalists have got 50 pages or 100 pages of a novel in a drawer. And what happens is that when you begin writing your first novel, it's quite exciting. You can make stuff up, you think of names for characters, you have these... So ideas. much better than journalism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then after a few weeks, you begin to think, well, I, t I, tonight I think I'll go down the pub. Yeah. And you, it begins to get boring and you think, well, nobody's ever going to read it anyway. And that's how the, the 50 or 100 pages end up in the drawer for, you know, the rest of the journalist's life. And I really, uh, yeah, I suppose, and I think everybody who actually finishes a book has got a grain of obstinacy and thinks, oh, hell, I've started the thing. And I'm jolly well going to finish it. And I certainly felt that. And I think most people who end up as novelists have that streak. So wait, I've, I've, this one, you mentioned it, Eye of the Needle. This was your 11th book. And my first success, yes. And you know what, I look at it now, and um, I, there was a lovely interview with Paul McCartney on the radio, and she, he was asked, um, what do you, when you listen to those, you know, she loves you and I want to hold your hand, how do you feel about it? He says, he said, well, I listen to those tracks and I think, clever boy. <laughs> and I look at this book, which I wrote 50 years ago, and I think, did I really write that when I was 27? 
I mean, it's really good, and the, you know, the fact people are still buying it all these years later. I said, did I do that when I was 27? What a clever boy. <laughs> How many copies has this sold? Oh, uh, I don't know offhand. Uh, it's probably 10 million. Oh, it's probably 10 million. Okay, quickly, because I have it here, and then we'll go and sit down. But I want to ask you about this one, because this is your best bestseller. And it was a departure for you. Yes. It was your first medieval historical novel about the building of a cathedral. When you went to your publishers and you were known for a certain genre and you said, I'm going to write this book about the building of a cathedral, what did they say? Well, they said, so can. Uh, it's about building a church. Okay, yes. And it's in the Middle Ages. Yes. Are you sure? Um, and they, one of the publishers actually um, approached my wife Barbara and said you've got to stop him writing this book it's going to ruin his career hmm. and I wonder um, if that publisher still has a job <laughs> well I you know I felt very strongly that there was a terrific popular novel to be written about building a cathedral in the Middle Ages and um, that came as a bit of a surprise to my publishers. I'd written these thrillers and they said, look, you've done so well with the Nazis and the KGB and so why don't you just carry on with that? Um, but I thought this could be better. And, you know, I think it's the only time in my life when I've been right and everybody else has been wrong. But it was a creative risk. Yes, it was. Oh, yes, I did take a risk. Yeah, I did take a risk. And now that's the one that's sold more than any other copies. 29 million. I do know the okay. number for that yes. one. I'll put, yes, I'll put them back because I'm enough of talking about how many books you've sold, Ken. <laughs> uh, it's fantastic. I mean, what a great wall and what a wonderful tribute. Yes, this is how I've spent my life. This is what I've done. Let's go and take a seat. So in the course of of writing so many books, Ken, you've come to ideas about what makes a book, a novel, a successful novel. Um, you, you, you sort of develop tricks of the trade, I guess. Well, there's, there's one, there are many tricks, of course, but there's one key factor, which is that the reader must share the emotions of the characters. Mm -hmm. So that when a character's frightened, the reader is tense like this and if something sad happens the reader has a tear in her eye or his eye and uh, when uh, when something spooky happens uh, the reader might actually get up and go and make sure he really did lock the back door that kind of thing and uh, because that's what we turn the pages because we care about what's happening to these people uh, and if you think about it, it's a very odd thing because you know that I made it up sitting at my desk uh, and yet, when something sad happens, you're, th you're thinking, oh dear. And that's really the magic of literature. And if you can do that, then really nothing else matters. And you're very clear about the genre of book that you're writing. You'd call it popular fiction. Yes, and, and it was, it's what I always wanted to write. It's mainly what I've read most of my life, although I, have, I am actually quite interested in other kinds of novel. But it's, the, it's been the kind of fiction that has given me the most joy in my life. Plot is fundamental in popular fiction because something's got to keep the story turning over constantly. There must never be a moment when the reader thinks this is a good moment to put the book down or this is a good moment to put the light out. 
Um, and it's the plot that does that. It's, it's the plot that, that keeps the story interesting and turning and changing all the time. But the involvement comes from the emotion. So um, uh, the, uh, I, I start by working on the plot. But the most important thing is uh, the reader caring about what's going, what's happening. Talk about your heroes and your your villains and how you choose them. And and do you sort of do your heroes have little bits of villainry in them, and do your villains have little bits of heroism in them? Well, sometimes, but I don't think it's a rule. Um, when I was writing the Pillars of the Earth, uh, I've got this character William Hamley, and he's the he's the worst villain and there's several villains in that story but he's the worst of them all and I thought you know should I try and give him some saving grace uh, and and then I thought the heck with it he's going to be absolutely out and out as black as coal and um, interestingly enough of all my characters he's the one most mentioned in conversations with readers and they say, that William Hanley, <laughs> I wanted you to kill him off earlier. Of course, with a character that good, I wasn't going to kill him off until the end of the book. Uh, so, but isn't it interesting that the readers, they didn't say to me, surely he should have had some saving grace. There ought to have been something nice about him. They just totally responded to him. You deal with big questions and big actions and big, often brave bold characters and I imagine that's no coincidence that in a novel you need a sort of mousy wallflower is just not going to be very interesting absolutely. who doesn't make big decisions. Absolutely yeah cautious timid people never get in trouble and there's never a story to no. tell about them. And you, and you start with the very first line which often poses a big question. Or yes a big, yes and, well, and sort of it goes from there it gets it's big yeah. and it's bold and it's. I do think first lines are important and um, if I can I want to write a first line or maybe a first paragraph that, that makes the reader want to read the next sentence or the next paragraph. I mean, that's quite important. You know, people in I'd say very bookshops, you know, <laughs> opening the book saying, what's this, is, what is this about? So yes, I like um, a, a dramatic first line. And actually, I, probably my best is in the Pillars of the Earth. It's uh, the small boys came early to the hanging. And that, uh, that's a good first line because you don't expect small boys to be at a hanging and it also gives you the feeling which I wanted to give that this story is taking place in a society that's quite cruel. And then you with with the armor of light you you touch on themes that I think are overtly political the labor rights which actually feel like very modern themes. I mean I think actually often your books have modern themes. I mean you, and maybe that's part of why we love them, because it's the universality of falling in love and loss and grief. But this one, the theme of, of labour rights and, and oppression and people who, fear, who's, who are sort of pushed down by the era that they're in, I don't know, it, it felt to me, Ken, particularly apt of our time somehow. Well, there certainly are parallels. And, and the most important one is a technical revolution. And uh, the armor of light is about a time when new machinery turned the lives of ordinary people upside down. And um, actually, new machinery has been doing that ever since the 18th century, really, hasn't it? And the current thing that's got people worried is artificial intelligence uh, and the worry that, that it will take away their 
jobs and their livelihoods and so on. And exactly the same thing was going on in the 18th century. There was also in the 18th century a terrible European war. And uh, it, it went on for 23 years. Please God, the war in Ukraine won't go on for 23 years, but it's possible. Uh, and finally, there was a cost of living crisis in the 18th century. Now, in the 18th century, it takes the form of the price of bread doubling. And for f in, in those days, most families would buy the standard loaf, which was a four pound loaf. And it was, at the beginning of the story, it's seven pence. And by the end of the story, it's double that. So um, there were those, those three similarities, new technology, a terrible war, and, uh, and inflation. And as you rightly say, that's exactly what we're looking at today. Sal is one of my favorite characters. And I, while I was reading it, the, the heroine of, of the Armour of Light, who's this wonderfully strong woman who starts at the very beginning of the book losing her husband and takes on all of these challenges with her young son and, and forms a union and, and makes the best of, the, of these very difficult circumstances. But I found myself wondering, would history have had a Sal? Would you have had a heroine? Would women have been in that kind of position in the Middle Ages? And I've, I've, uh, I'm asked that question a lot because uh, I do always write about women like this. And I, but I think in every period of history, there are people who refuse to take on the identity that society is trying to give them. A, a small number of people, of course, they're, they're the rebels. They are the ones that, um, that say, uh, everybody says to them, oh, you typical example would be saying to a girl who's pushing 30, you really ought to get married, you know. And she might say, heck no, I'm not going to do that. Now, now most girls in the Victorian era didn't say heck no, of course, uh, but one or two did. And they're the interesting ones. All the, the ones who do exactly what's expected of them, are not, they're not worth writing the story about. It's too predictable. So I like those kind of characters, and I think a few of them exist in every period of history. OK, Ken, we have something to show you, which I better just check we've got the right things. Oh, yes, this is very nice. This, Ken Follett, this is your life moment. <laughs> yes, yes. That's me. Uh, uh, I must be um, six there, I think. This is this is you right here. Yeah. Your mum and your dad and your my sister, sister Hannah. Hannah. Yeah. And this is in would have been in Wales where you. Yes, grew this up? is in Cardiff, definitely. Yes, um, I lived there till I was ten years old, so that's definitely where that is. And your family was quite religious. Very, they were extremely religious. We belonged middle to... class. Uh, yes, basically. I mean, they didn't have much money at that point, but um, but they were basically middle class. Yes, my dad was worked for the Inland Revenue and he eventually became a tax inspector. And you grew up in a household where there was not television. There's no TV, no radio. I wasn't allowed to go to the movies uh, um, because it was, that was part of their religion. It was a very puritanical sect that they belonged to. Um, but I mean, it's uh, every cloud has a silver lining. So on Saturday morning, the cinemas used to show movies for kids. And everybody I knew went on Saturday morning. I was the only one who wasn't allowed to go. And of course, I was absolutely furious about it. Um, but instead, I went to the public library. And that, that probably helped me. What did your parents make of your success as a novelist? Uh, they had very mixed feelings um, because, of course, 
in my stories, people say things like, oh my God. And my parents think that's wrong. There is a verse in the Bible, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. And so they hated the fact that people said things like that. And of course, there are very explicit love scenes in my books, and they, they, they found that very disagreeable. My dad read the books. He was a, he was, he was a bit more broad-minded than my mum. My mum eventually discovered the Reader's Digest condensed books, and they used to, in one volume, they would put shortened versions of four books, four novels, and... Um, being the Reader's Digest, they would take out all the love scenes and all the swearing and so a sanitized on. sanitized version. It, it was a sanitized version, and my mum loved those. <laughs> <laughs> this is you as a cub reporter, yes, yes. the Ken Follett that could have been. Uh, that's right, yes, that's right. Well, that's about the time uh, that I was writing Eye of a Needle. I was, I was um, working as a reporter in the day and then writing Eye of a Needle in the evening. And that was, uh, that was the best typewriter you could get, I think, at the time. Did you find it easy to write on a typewriter that didn't have a delete button? I have to say, I'm completely reliant on the delete button to write anything. I mean, the only way I can get my mind to allow me to put anything on the page is knowing that I can get over it. And with that, you had to tipex it out or white paste it out or whatever it was uh, yeah, you did and in of course days. We, and of course, we didn't dream of the way you can delete in in, in uh, on modern computers. I mean, that, would, that hadn't even been thought of. And Ken, if you hadn't been a writer, clearly you were going to be a rock and roll star. <laughs> I, you know, it's hard to know, isn't it? Um, I've been playing the guitar since I was 14, and I play the bass guitar now, which is what I'm playing there. It's always been something that I've felt relaxed about because I don't have to be the best in the world at it. So I play simple lines on the bass guitar and uh, I don't care if anybody's impressed. So long as, it, so long as the band likes what I'm playing, that's the main thing. I, love, I think you look very relaxed. You yeah, that's the happy. truth. Yeah, yeah, really enjoying it, yeah. Hmm, secret door. <laughs> into, the, into the den. That's right. <laughs> so this is where it all happened. I love this actually, by the way. These, these aren't real books. They're not real books. Know. So this is where all the magic happens. Yeah. But you can write anywhere, Ken. That's the truth, yeah. In the, in the departure lounge, on the plane, in the car. Although I have to say, as a spot, this is not bad. This is the best place, yeah. So, so right. we're going to talk about the process and how yeah. it happens. Pull it yeah. out. Yeah. Okay. So, Ken, you've got your three screens, and I've always been interested in the process. You described it to me in dinner in Washington years ago. But you have a very methodical approach to how you do the books. Des describe the, the process. So this screen shows the first draft, draft A. On the right-hand side are notes from various people uh, who have seen the first draft. And you'll see here, somebody who works for me says, I was not drawn in as quickly, nor did I read it as fast as the last two books. So that's interesting, isn't it? Mm. That suggests that the first chapter might be a bit ponderous. So maybe you haven't got your plot twist every three to four pages yes, yes. that you like to have. Yes. So that, I mean, that, that, that comment is right up at the top of the list of comments because that was quite an important so one. So you wouldn't read that and think, to hell with them, I'm Ken Follett, what do they know? No. <laughs> you would read that and think, Oh, what can I learn? Yeah, absolutely. I'll take that back. Oh, absolutely, yes. 
Yes. Mm. And then in the middle, this is the second draft, but what I'm what I would be doing is writing this second draft. And I and I type I key it. I don't take this and edit it and make marks on it. I take a blank sheet of paper in the middle and and then I start writing the whole book again. Which must take longer than going over the first draft and just Absolutely. editing it. Well, it takes a full year. So planning is a year, first draft is a year, second draft is a year. It sounds as if it's a chore that might not be essential, you know. And sometimes my publishers want to publish the first draft. Um, but that's because their standards aren't as high as mine. And um, generally, after reading the second draft, they say, I see what you mean. And you think by writing the second draft from scratch, you always end up with a better product? Oh, definitely. No question. I'm totally convinced of that. Do you ever get angsted about writing? Do you ever suffer writer's block or feel, what am I doing, and have an existential crisis about it? Uh, I never have a crisis, but there is a moment in every book, and I've talked to other writers about this who have the same thing. There's a moment in every book where you're deep into it and you've written several hundred pages and you look at it and you think, why the heck would anybody want to read this? <laughs> what, it, what is so... And um, I know that what you have to do is you have to press on. You have to put that thought aside and you have to say things like, if it's not good enough, then I'll rewrite it and it will be better. But uh, that's the nearest I come. You couldn't call that an existential crisis. It's just a moment of severe doubt. I think you are the least angsted writer I've ever met. That's <laughs> quite likely. Early in my career, I had an agent uh, and uh, he said to me, your only problem as a writer is that you're not a tortured soul. <laughs> you love it. You love I the do, whole yeah. process. I like the whole thing. I'm completely absorbed uh, by it and, you know, to say I like my work is like saying I like my wife. I don't just like my wife, I adore her. And that's how I feel about the, the, the work. I'm absolutely into it.